Hey, BTB Buddies, we're sponsored by Podcorn. If you've ever listened to a big-name podcast, you know they have a lot of sponsors. The reason why brands choose to advertise on podcasts is that podcast advertising is up to three times more effective than TV, print, or radio advertising. If you're a brand and you checked out advertising on those big-name podcasts, you found out that the cost may be way outside your budget. And if you're a podcast that would like to get some of that ad revenue, you found out that unless you have at least 10,000 listens per episode, advertisers won't even talk to you. Podcorn came about as a solution for advertisers with any budget from a hundred bucks to a million bucks and podcasters with listeners in the hundreds or in the millions. Here's how it works. If you're an advertiser, go to podcorn.com and sign up as an advertiser. You enter in pertinent information about your brand and the message you want podcasts to communicate for you. You can then choose what type of advertising you'd like. You can get a host-read ad, an interview, a topical discussion, or all of the above. Then you can make your sponsorship live and wait for podcasters to give you their pitch. You decide who you want to work with. If you have a podcast, go to podcorn.com and register as a podcast. You'll create a profile with info about your podcast and the people who listen. Then you can start browsing sponsorship opportunities right away. As an advertiser or podcast, you communicate directly about the ad. There is no middle person. This is so easy you wouldn't believe it until you go to Podcorn and sign up. Guess where I got this sponsorship? Podcorn. I'm being paid to read this ad right now, and I'm just a little independent podcast. Check out the show notes for a direct link to Podcorn and sign up today. I know I'm glad I did. Hey, BTB buddies. I'm coming to the end of my sponsorship of the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. But that doesn't mean you should stop listening. I know I'm not. Matt, Greg, and Brendan do a great job talking to their guests about everything you wouldn't expect them to talk about. That's really the beauty of the show. Maybe you'll see their guests on other podcasts, but I guarantee the conversation will be much more entertaining while listening to the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. If you haven't already, give Matt, Brendan, and Greg a listen. Or better yet, watch them on their YouTube channel so you can see what's going on. It's really cool to see them interact with their guests and with each other. Some of the expressions of the guests are actually pretty cool. Check out the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker podcast on all the apps and head over to qsblaw.org to hit them up on social media. And once again... Head over to the YouTube channel. I think that's the best way to experience the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. And thanks for listening, and let them know I sent you. It's a good one. Sports Talk Podcast. Okay, you formed a picture in your mind. Now let's paint a happy little tree right over that picture. Podcast that talks about people who talk about sports. Boom, baby. That's something completely different, right? It's called Trash Sports Takes, and it's hosted by Ryan Seabrest and Brent Liberty, who have been working together on another podcast for quite a while. This is important because it actually sounds like a professional podcast and not someone who is talking into their phone while it's in their pocket and they're driving. It sounds better. Anyway, Trash Sports Takes is a no-holds-barred trash talk of all the sportscasters, fans, and players of all the sports that are just wrong, according to Ryan and Brent.
They don't hold back, and they use colorful language to talk about people like Skip Bayless and all the sportscasters. It's quite entertaining, and Ryan and Brent are interested in hearing your take on their takes. They might even bring you on the show so you can roast them on their own show. This show is a lot of fun for sports fans. Head over to your favorite app and type in Trash Sports Takes or go to TrashSportsTakes.com if you want to dig a little deeper in the show. That's Trash Sports Takes. And let me tell you, folks, it's a good one. My guest this time around today started stand-up comedy at the age of 18. And this guy is a true road warrior. He will perform for 15 people or 5,000 people. He's been all over the country, in different countries, all over the place. Has been doing it for 52 weeks a year for many years. He's written screenplays. He's got six comedy albums. And he's got a book coming out that's called How to Fail at Stand-Up Comedy Without Even Trying. Let me pull the graphic up for that book real quick before I forget. If you're watching, there's a few of you watching. But yeah, How to Fail at Stand-Up Comedy. There's a lot of books about how to succeed. He wrote one on how to fail, so I bet he's got some stories. Let's bring him out. It's Steve Sabo. Steve, how are you? I'm great, man. Glad to have got to be here. Glad yeah, I am. I, I'm stoked to talk to you because one of the things that this is a learning podcast, so like new comics can learn what to do and what not to do. And one of the I told you before we started, one of the questions I like to ask most of my guests are, you know, what's three things now that you wish you would have known when you started? But I think you've got right. a whole book full of things that we're going to talk about. But I wanted to yeah. get into your history a little bit first off because you started very very young at if you started in 18 where did you uh where were you located then where did you grow up so i i grew up in ohio i was okay. born in cleveland we moved around a lot as a kid and uh, i graduated high school in fremont ohio okay but uh, that's a small town most people don't know it's by costa by uh sandusky by cedar point that yep. area yeah um but i went to college at miami university of miami florida okay and yeah, so that's where I first started doing comedy is I was in college down there and they had this search college comedy competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the weirdest thing because I was always a big fan of comedy growing up. I think a lot of stand-ups were. That's, you wouldn't get into it if it wasn't something that you grew up doing or enjoying. So uh, I was always a fan, but I never thought I'd do it ever in my life. But every time I was, I walked to class, every single day I'd pass by these flyers all over campus for this contest. Mm-hmm. every single day but I, it was there for weeks and I, I never had the guts to sign up I was like I'm never going to do this I'm never going to do this and then on the very last week I said and I just said I'm going to I'm going to kick myself if I don't at least call and see if if whatever just to find out mm-hmm. and I did, and they said sure we'll slip you in and by that point in time there's only two weeks or two days excuse me for me to prepare and act <laughs> I screwed myself in that sense I should have just did it but yeah. I guess I may have talked myself out of it if I had more time anyway. Well, I guess it worked out in the end, but I did it. And, uh, and that, that's just it. The first time I, that's why I tell people all the time is that because people talk all the time about, oh, I should try stand up or I want to try stand up. I go, just do it. You just have to do it because the moment I did it, I realized that's what I wanted to do. I yeah. just immediately, I'm like, this is it. I, this is my epiphany moment. This is what I want to do. i you know, everybody at 18, it's arrogant for me to say I had an epiphany at 18, but uh-huh. I guess I did because I'm 
right now, right? Yeah, no doubt. That's uh, that's it's really great that somebody that young can find out at that age what they want to do because most most uh, people can't. And I even my daughter, she's grown now. She didn't quite know what she wanted to do when she got into school, and uh, now she does. So she's doing fine. But knowing that, but of course knowing what you know now that was a tough way to go because yeah. uh, it's a lot easier just to get a job and get a home and go to work and come come home every night and watch tv comedy's a little bit yeah. different so let's talk about those first years after you you did the comedy competition and stuff like that when you actually started to get serious about it and want to mm-hmm. make this a career when the, did that did you do the whole four years at uh, college yeah, I was doing stand up the entire time I was in college, mm-hmm. and and I did. I stayed in college, but the, but I didn't think about doing stand up until I was getting ready to graduate mm-hmm. as a career. I was graduating with a degree in journalism and creative writing, and I thought to myself, that's not that, that wasn't a, a well paying field anyway. That was you know yeah. not exactly. I wasn't shooting for the moon in that sense. But yeah. before I tried to pursue that fully. I just thought to myself that I, I needed to give comedy a go at that point. So at that point in time, because I guess I was, I guess I started at the very beginning of my, I'm trying to, my, you know, it's been so long, my, my times, but I think I started right at the very beginning of my sophomore year of college. I was the, I think, or either, either the tail end of my freshman or the beginning of my sophomore, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But by that point in time, I've been doing comedy for three and a half, four years, whatever. And I did it a lot. Like I did it like three times a week. That's like my favorite thing in the world to do. I'd go mm-hmm. everywhere I could. So. I had a lot of reps at that point in time. I was doing pretty well and I was being, I just felt like I had the opportunities to possibly make it as a career back then. So I did, I decided I was going to try it before I did anything else. And, and that's where it got, that's where it gets weird is because you have all these opportunities that are afforded to do, but you don't realize that all those opportunities aren't really that many opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so like, <laughs> When I first decided to do it, I lined up like 12 full weeks of work, like immediately. And uh-huh. I was like, yeah, got this. and then I realized I had 12 weeks of work and that was it. That's that it, was yeah. my year at that point. Uh-huh. So I had, I had 12 weeks of paid work and then nothing for like the next 12 weeks. Uh-huh. And then I was able to book another thing and then another thing, but it was like, I didn't realize it was going to be that hard. You never do, but the first 12 were so easy. I didn't think it was going to be that hard to keep that momentum going, but it, it isn't that easy. It's a lot harder, I think, a lot harder. Yeah, and one of the things, uh, it, it's funny, I just talked to another gentleman earlier today. He's from Youngstown, Ohio, and he he talked about the fact that as a com- comic, your job's so easy. You go up and you do 30, 45, 60 minutes, and that's your whole day. Well, that's not your whole day because you got to write another 30, 45, 60 minutes because you can't live off of the, that one for the rest of your life. You got to book shows, you got to get paid. You you got to find transportation. You got to do it's all day. You got to yeah. do stupid morning zoo radio. And it's, it's more than a full-time job. It really is. That's what people don't, don't get. Like just the process of trying to get booked is a full-time job in and yeah. of itself. Like mm-hmm. you're sending sales, you're redoing your promo pack. You're, you're sending out videos, you're re- redoing videos, you're editing videos, you're updating your website, you're doing mm-hmm. all these different contacting new bookers, figuring out what it is that they want. You're trying to network with other comedians to figure out what clubs are they in that you could get into and what their requirements are. And Mm -hmm. every place has a different 
requirement as a different booker. By the time you get in with one club, whoever was booking comedy is no longer there by the time your date rolls around. So then you, you don't even know if your date's still going to be good. But if it is good, you're talking to a whole brand new person. Then you're lining up transportation. You're trying to figure out what your lodging is going to be. Do they, do they cover lodging? Do they not cover lodging? Are you traveling with another comedian? Who's driving? Yeah. Car maintenance. There's a, there's a million, million things that you have to do. And then yeah. when you're on the road, you get home and you have maybe one or two days before you got to go back out on the road. And in that one or two days, now you're rebooking shows and trying to do your laundry, trying to pay your bills and yeah. trying to make, you know, any sense of normalcy in your life, which yeah. is really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so I listen to a lot of your comedy and I like how you're, you're a rapid fire type guy. And in your bio, it says that you're a chameleon. You can uh, adjust to any room. And I've, some of your video shows that because we all know that some rooms just don't respond to some stuff. And I, I, you've got a couple out there where your opener did okay. Your second one kind of fell flat. And then you went into something. I could tell you just shifted gears. I could see in your eyes that you were shifting gears and you went into something else. And that's an art in and of itself because it's, you got what you want to do, but when you find out it's not going to work, you got to edit and you've got a split second to actually do the edit. And I, I, I had, to say i really i watched a few of those and i can tell that you're doing that quite a bit have you ever done the set that you expected to do (laughs) when you're in a when you're in a live situation besides an album right 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 that's a very good observation and and because that's exactly what i do so for me i try to exactly what you're saying is i used to try to do it i used to set schedule a whole set mm-hmm. this is what i'm going to do from the beginning to the end and that just doesn't work for me because i do often have to change gears that's the way i do the way i do it so i usually start i know how i'm going to start i know my first one two or three jokes mm-hmm. and i use how i'm going to end or something like that but then i try to let the uh, the audience dictate where i go from there just like you would see like i would do a joke and uh, if it does well then i'm going to continue on jokes in, in that vein mm. if it doesn't do as well i'm going to switch to another area and see how that goes and mm. if that doesn't go well, i'm going to switch to a third so i've like i've got like yeah. six or seven different uh different paths mm. i can take at any given moment and from any spot in the show i can switch gears and do that too sometimes i'll i'll do mostly crowd work if i can't figure them out right away i'll do a lot of crowd work up front yeah. and then try to out and try to ease them back in the material but i've done some shows that were completely all crowd work and i've done some shows that were just material and i've done some shows where where they seem like they're they want edgy stuff at first and then <laughs> something happens and they don't so then you gotta pull yeah. back yeah then shows where you start off being cleaner and gentler because you think that's who they are and then you tell one dirty line and they erupt and go crazy and you're like oh this is what you wanted the whole time yeah it's weird because you think based on the environment right like you think if you're like in a in like a dive bar they want it raunchier or or dirtier and if you're like in a nice country club or something like that then they want it cleaner but that isn't always the case yeah you just never you just don't know yeah that's what's like about comedy because you can always if you've been in it long enough and you have enough material you feel confident no matter what where your environment is because you've got the stuff to make it work yeah and it seems like a lot of times you really need to please one table and then the rest of them will come along for the ride 
and, and you know how laughter works. If you've got one table that will just laugh at everything you say and you, you can get them going, they get everybody else going. So sometimes you're just winning over, and sometimes it's just one person. But it, I, some, when I do my act, I'm always like, okay, if I can get this guy to laugh, then I can get anybody to laugh. And But the funny yeah. thing about audiences is it, you always – when you're in it, you forget the, okay, these folks maybe go out three times a year, some of them, and, right. and they decided to go to a comedy club. They don't know you. They didn't do any research on you. They don't know who you are. They just want to laugh. And if their expectations are you're going to be like the last comic they saw 15 years ago, and you have to adjust for that, and then you always get the... There's always one table of people that want to be part of the act and want to interject at every joke and all that. And it's tough. And I like how you put everything out so people can see it. And you can see some of the times where the the audience just wasn't on your side and you really have to work to get them around to your side and a lot of comics they're too vain they don't do that and they only put out the greatest hits so it was fun watching some of your more uncomfortable moments i'll have to say i'm glad to hear you say that i've actually it's funny that you say that because i always feel like that if i get a if i get a bad review on a cd or something like that i'll mm-hmm. post that as, as quickly as i'll post a good review i try to as as honest and, and transparent as I possibly can. It's just not realistic. You're not going to always, you know, win over every audience at all. But I also, I don't know, I think sometimes it's, I like those moments when it's, when you're struggling as well. I, I think that that brings out more humanity, more reality of, yeah. of the thing. Yeah, I've always been like that. I've always just kind of, I, I kind of enjoy, I don't know what you would even call that, but the work, actually working, yeah. you know, for, yeah. for, for my, yeah. And you've got a classic old school style that that really you've modernized it obviously, but that that classic style you don't see as much anymore. Everybody wants to have some sort of a weird angle or be super. Everybody wants to be Bill Burr or whatever, and and not everybody should do that. And it looks like you've got that down to a point where you can play for just about any audience. You can yeah. you can go blue. You can be G rated or. or or anything in between. And that's what a lot of comics fail to realize at the beginning that you got to have, you got to have a portfolio of just about everything. If you want to have more than one date a month scheduled. Yeah. Yeah. That's really true. And it's funny that there are, you're right. There's a lot of comedians that they become comedians because they like the style of one particular act. Say you said Bill Burr. Or let's say even like Mitch Hedberg or, or yeah. whoever. They want to be that comedian. Mm. But they don't understand that they are not that comedian. They don't have anywhere near the skill set, at least. And they probably never will. Those, those They're always – because it's not like they're emulating somebody that nobody knows. They're always emulating somebody who's at the top of the yeah. of the, of the chain. Mm. And they're never going to get there. They might get there on their own if they create their own style. But by by copying somebody else's style, they're never going to get there. Yeah. And uh, – so that's where part of the problem comes in is until you develop who you are as a comedian, you're never going to reach the fame that you want to be at. And that's where I think a lot of comics get really frustrated and they end up quitting after five or 10 years because they think, oh, these people don't understand me. They don't respect me. They don't do it. But I think that when you really look at it, a lot of comedians, they don't understand that. Let me say it differently. Some comedians, some, I always, I don't want to say a lot or most or whatever, but some comedians 
go into comedy just to please themselves. Yeah. And other people go into comedy to make a living at it job. And if you want to do it, if you want to just please yourself, you can go to open mics and do whatever you want, you know, have yeah. at it. Enjoy that. But if you want to be paid, if you want to, you know, do this for a living to entertain audiences as a, as an actual paid performer, as a profession, mm-hmm. you're going to have to, learn how to do it, do it right for the, to please the people that are paying you. Yeah. And it has to be a mix because if you don't like what you're doing up there, they know it. you have to like your material too in order to make it believable. But yeah, and I... Brian Stewart here of the Two Lives Dudes. I want to tell you about Herbal Erect, a male enhancement instant drink made with natural ingredients I now use. It is specially formulated to improve any intimate encounter and maximize your sexual potential. With my high blood pressure and having to schedule adult playtime with my wife, our relationship struggled. Now I take Herbal Erect. There have been no side effects and happy wife, happy life. Remember, sex is supposed to be fun and enjoyable. For a free sample, visit herbal-erect.com. That's herbal-erect.com. Also available on amazon.com. It's one of the things I have always admired about comics that can do just about any room. And uh, Dreesen, Tom Dreesen was my first guest on the podcast over a year ago, and he can do anything. He can do G, he can do a stag roast, he can do whatever. And people that can do that obviously get more work. And the whole goal for most comics is to be able to make a living doing what they love, which is comedy. And in order to do that, sometimes you have to change things up a little bit and make some sacrifices and understand that you can't be the super new edgy guy on the street in your first couple of years. You you have to grow into that type of stuff and then you can really bring everything out full tilt. But yeah, I, I, I'm intrigued by the book that's coming out. Oh, it's out today? Cool. I, I knew you said pre-sale at one point, but I didn't know if it was up or not. But so let's talk about, let's take me through how to fail at uh, stand-up comedy without even trying. First of all, what made you want to write that book? Here's what it, it came down to this, right? Is that I was just you know trying to think, I wrote a novel. I wrote a novel called Jester's Run initially. And then the moment I finished writing that and I put it out, then you feel you almost have this emptiness and you want to do something else. You want to create something else and Mm -hmm. you don't know what to create. And what was funny, when I first was put out the book, a lot of people said, why did you write a novel? You should write a book about comedy because that's what what you've done your entire life. And I I went, there's already books on comedy. There's a a ton of books on comedy. Every book in the world about comedy is, is almost exactly the same. Yeah. And then I thought to myself, what book isn't out there. They have all these books on, on how to write or how to perform or, or how to do this mm. properly, but they don't tell you how to actually be a comedian in a real life sense, in the sense of all the mistakes that you're going to make along the way. Yeah, it, They don't tell you any of that. None mm. of those books tell you because the mistakes are the thing that's going to make or break you. It really is in the, yeah. in the long run. You, you, you can write the best joke in the world. You can be the greatest joke writer in the planet. And if you can't get work, Nobody's going to see it. And it could be the best performer in the world, but if you have a bad reputation for bad behavior or things like that, nobody's going to want to hire you. Mm. So um, if you can learn how to navigate that and learn what bookers are looking for, and that's one of the things that you have to understand too, is I've also, I've booked rooms myself. I Mm. also, but sometimes comedians. And the things that people send you saying that they want to work in the way they approach it, I think to myself, 
these guys, you can immediately tell. A booker can immediately tell if this person works on a regular basis or doesn't work on a regular basis. Yeah. And you know how they say, fake it until you make it, right? Yeah. That's one of the things that, that's important is that even if you don't work on a regular basis, if you approach me in the right professional way, yeah. I'm probably going to give you a chance. You know, right. I'll probably, you could, you might even fool me if I'm not being that careful. Don't do my research on it. Right. But immediately tell when somebody's not. Like somebody, as an example, somebody sends you sends you their avails and then an hour later goes, did you get my avails? Are you kidding me? I, <laughs> been an hour but they do yeah they do that stuff or they'll get angry with you or i think one of the one of my favorite stories that happened is that happened to me once is there's a comedian and he's from new york city and i don't remember he had won some sort of a contest mm-hmm. and as a result of what contest a lot of bookers had agreed and i was one of the bookers that agreed that the winner of the contest can get work at certain places i can give him work so he contacted me um, about the work that he can, he could get or whatever. And it's, and uh, so I told him what the pay was. And the first thing he says, he goes, okay, that sounds good. And you guys, do you guys in- include flights? Like you're paying for the flights and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, you've never worked at comedy ever. Yeah. Did you? You just, <laughs> and you have no idea what the business is like Yeah, because no, nobody's paying not at that stage. Anyway, if you're going to a big club and you're a big name act, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll, they might pay your, but I'm booking a one-nighter in the middle of Nebraska. I'm not paying for your flight. (laughs) (laughs) He had no idea. Like, I immediately knew this guy is not really, he's not really ready to work. Cause, and and you wonder too, sometimes what, how that guy's going to, maybe he'll adjust, maybe he'll figure it out on the way, but he's going to have a lot of rough show. If he's going to go out without having any idea how the world actually works in, in, as far as comedy is. Yeah. And it's funny. Uh, it amazes me how little sometimes people know, even though we've got an internet and people doing this a podcast, talking about how to act and how to be and what to do to succeed. And some people still don't know. When you think about it back in the day, before the internet and all that, how could anybody know? If you're from the Midwest, you think that you can go to LA and do one set at the comedy store and get on Johnny Carson. They, they People thought that. And some of them actually did okay. Letterman did it, and he he did pretty good for himself. But it's funny, and Dreesen did the same thing after him and Tim Reed broke up. So it's funny how people still have that, and they think they should go from their first open mic to headlining within a couple of weeks and, and getting a big paycheck along with it. And it, it just doesn't happen that way. It doesn't. And what's funny, too, is is people that aren't in the comedy industry at all are probably even worse because I have people that they'll see me after a show and they'll go uh, and they'll go, oh, you're really great. You know what you should do? You should get on Last Comic Standing. Yeah. You know, or, or you should get your own Netflix special. And, oh, is what, what a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, never, I never even thought about that. Who books like, that room? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll get right Don't on you that. Think I would have done that already. <laughs> so you've got the you've got a great idea for a book the, that people can uh, look to for all your mistakes. Let's talk about some of the stuff that went on in your life during your comedy career that you just totally fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> so much of that. And it's, uh, so I'll give you I'll give you a really simple one out of the gate, and that's I'm glad 
you you curse because I wasn't sure what the level of cursing was in this. Because yeah, I, I always like to be the first. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you are because uh, the first one involves that. So yeah. what when the first thing happened is when I first started doing comedy, I was in Florida. In order to get more work, anybody who knows how the states work. Florida is a big state uh-huh. and to get out of Florida is like a seven hour drive, no matter where you're at. Yeah. So it was a big deal to try to get work outside of that. Cause I had to get a lot of work. I couldn't just go out for a week because that's not going to, it's not going to make sense to drive 15 hours and come back three days later financially. So figure out how to make that work. So what I did is I, I saved a bunch of money and went on a big road trip and set up all these auditions across the country mm-hmm. um, and all these different clubs. And all the clubs accepted me because I was smart enough. I waited until I was ready to get work to these clubs. And the one club that didn't accept me didn't accept me for for one particular reason. And that reason was in my audition, I said, fuck, one time. And uh, and it upset me. And, it, and I was mad for years, probably even over a decade before I actually realized it and figured it out. Uh-huh. Because when I... But I do it all the time. So what I tell people to do, when you get there, you find out what their rules are. Ask them what, what I have seven minutes. Okay, I have seven minutes. What are my rules? What words can I say? What words can I say? Where's the light? All those t- type of things. And I said, I established it. And I went up there and I did a great set. And like I had by far the best set of everybody that night. Mm-hmm. Like, it's one of those moments where you just think, oh yeah, they're going to be pulling me into the back room immediately yeah. to sign me for 15 weeks or whatever. It was just one of those sets. It was, uh-huh. just, it was so great. And then uh, I called the next week, and they didn't even re- they didn't even answer the phone. They didn't they didn't take the call. They didn't call me back. So I called again. And I called again. And finally, when I finally got to the person, they said they were going to pass. And I was just like, I don't even <laughs> I don't even understand. Why would you? Did, did you not see my set? Yeah, it was amazing. And she says, Yeah, you you fuck. And I go, Yeah, I said fuck once because you didn't say I couldn't say fuck. And this is what she said to me. She goes. If you were ready to work, you would know you can't say fuck in an audition. Uh-huh. And that was like, Jesus, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose all this work just because of one word. But yeah. then it took me a while and I realized she's right because a lot of people are going to do an audition. They're going to do their cleanest material for an audition. They're mm-hmm. going to be the, the, the best they can. And if, me saying fuck in seven minutes is my cleanest material. At least that's in her head. Yeah. Then she doesn't want me on her stage because she's, she has to imagine that then my next 20, 30 minutes is all rape material or whatever else. So I came to the realization that you should know. And that's my first thing of advice is regardless of what they tell you, the rules are have your own set of standards that, that, make sense that are reasonable on that same level. Here's an example. I hired a comic to open for me once at the, and I, I was like, I don't know, like an Amvets, one of those type of places. Mm-hmm. And the rule of that show was don't say fuck. Mm-hmm. So I told him the only rule is don't say fuck. And he didn't say fuck. But what he did do instead was he went on, st- on stage and he dropped the C word four separate times. Oh, man. <laughs> They were freak, yeah. freaking out. And, and afterwards, I'm like, what are you, what were you thinking? He goes, what? I didn't say fuck. I go, the C word is worse than fuck. Like, how do you not? But I didn't say it. So you have to have a level of common sense. And or I guess even saying common sense isn't common for everybody. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Problem, you know, they did. He saw thought was one word, and that was all. But yeah. there's a lot of things that you have to just use your brain in a sense. If in doubt, don't do it. 
especially yeah. at an audition. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Any reasonable person should know that don't say fuck means that and all the other words that could be centered around that. That's pretty easy. <laughs> would think. Would think. But I can tell you it didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't happen that way. But if you're going to say other things where you mess up, it's not having a good car. If you don't have a good car, you're not going to you're not going to make it in this business because you're going to you're going to miss out on gigs, all the money you're going to make is going to go into car repairs. You're going to be stranded on the side of a highway. You don't know about how important a car is, but it's probably the most, it's probably having a good car will get you having a good act. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that's good advice. Did you ever, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but did, did you ever experience where bookers either had a bias against you or had preconceived notions that you just yeah. couldn't overcome? Sure. Absolutely. hundred percent. I've had that several times. And uh, like, here's a, a good example of that is that, and I talk about this in the book too, is, is I did get an ep- an, uh, a reputation early on as being a dirty act mm-hmm. and uh, because I was a dirty act and I like dirty. I always mm-hmm. like dirty comics. And I like dirty comedy mm-hmm. personally. And some bookers just don't like the book dirty comics and that's fine. I have hours and hours of material that isn't dirty, mm-hmm. you know, plenty of clean stuff. I do, I do corporate shows, but it's hard for certain bookers to get past that and, and to understand that if they themselves think that you're a dirty act. So I had a lot of problems with that. An example being is that I asked another comic to uh, to vouch for me. And he says, I, I've worked him many times. He crushes every time on stage. And then at the very end, wrote something to the effect of, in, the, in, the, in the, his thing, is he's a little dirty for my taste. Oh. I'm like, why would you say that? Why? <laughs> you, just, you just destroyed it. There's no chance for me to work now just because of that one statement. And it's I don't have to be dirty. The show you worked with me on was a bar gig. It was yeah. a bar gig. It's, they wanted me to be dirty. You have to get that. You have to understand that. But some bookers, they just don't want to get past that. And that's an example. Some people have that prejudice. Or I also, at one point in time, and it, it's in the book, I talk about it, I had a reputation as, as maybe uh, being a little too much of a drinker, too much of a partier, which in booker terms, that's too much of a liability. Yeah. And they didn't want to hire me because of that. But I... In the last 10 years or more, I, I barely drink. If I drink on stage, it's a beer I brought up there with me and almost as a prop, not yeah. really even to drink, just to, to say, hey, I'm one of you guys. Yeah. We're all in this together. I never drink before shows, ever. And uh, I barely drink during a show, if I can avoid it. But when I first started doing comedy, I was the party guy. That, that was my character. I was, mm-hmm. I was a big party guy. I'd go up on stage. I'd talk about tequila. An audience would order me a shot, and I'd do a shot with them. And they'd order me another shot, I'd do another shot with them. And yeah. the next thing you know, that's what I would do. And which works great at bar gigs, but not great at the country club, not great at, at the funny bone. They don't want that. Yeah. So, yeah, it can definitely it can definitely be a hindrance. And even and that's an example too. Finding the right comic to vouch for you can also be a problem uh-huh. because if you work for with a comic who has a bad reputation and he's the one that's recommending you, you're probably not going to get that gig. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's, he's, if he's an end, it right. doesn't work. And so it's, it's, also, the right it's also very competitive, and I'm sure you've experienced comics that may have embellished their opinion of you so that they could get the gig instead of you. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't like to, I don't like to say it like that, but yeah. yeah. There's a lot of comics... That will that just don't like you or you're not 
part of their crew or whatever it is. Mm. And uh, they don't want you taking a spot of theirs or somebody else's. Yeah. So they might say, oh, you think about book- booking that guy? Oh, I don't know about that. I heard he had a, he had a meltdown over here. Or he had that. It's, it's easy for comics to, to try to do that. You think they're, they think they're trying to help you, but they, they aren't necessarily. It's tough. Yeah. And it's hard. That's one hard thing for a comic because, you know, what, one of the basic things about most comics is that we want to be liked and we want to sure. be uh, part of a group of people, of like minded people, and be a brotherhood, sisterhood, whatever. And in, in, in a lot of cases, it is that way. You make lifelong friends doing comedy, but you also make lifelong enemies. And it's, it, you have to really develop a thick skin for those people who you're not going to win them over they're not they're never going to come to your side they don't like you for some reason and it's just, it just ain't going to happen and it could be any reason which is the craziest thing yeah. right so it could be something as simple as you worked a club that they've been wanting to get into and they never got a chance to get in that club so they mm. hate you because you had it yeah or it could be that they were they were at a club and they were hitting on a waitress and she says that she just saw your act and thought you were the funniest thing ever, and they hate you because of that, because the girl that they wanted to hook up with thought you were funny. Yeah. Or it could be there's a million different reasons. It could yeah. be you you joke about, say, um, running, whatever, and they were writing a joke about running, but your joke is better than their joke about running, so they resent you because of that. Yeah. There's so many different possible reasons, and you can't know what it is. But the best part about it is – they'll still act to your face like your best buddies, even though they just torpedoed you and your career on the, on the side. Yeah. It's a weird business, man. It's not good. And if you don't have a thick skin, you're going to be paranoid and crazy all the time because yeah. you'll have situations where, where you get, again, you'll get 10 weeks of work straight up and then you can't for six weeks, you can't book anything. Mm-hmm. And then you start getting in your head. What happened? What did they hear? What do they know? Or why do they, why is, I, I see this guy's getting work. Why am I not getting work? And what's happening? I'm way farther than this person. I don't understand. It's just, it's enough to drive you crazy. Uh-huh. You just have to, you just have to keep your own path and it'll work out eventually. At least I guess I could say that for me, it has, I can't yeah. speak for everyone. Now, you know. One one of the things that I think that is evident about you is that you're a workaholic and that you will do whatever it takes to perform as much. And you you talk about having a good car, so you'll go wherever and perform wherever. Right. Do you have anything in the book about burnout where oh, you sure. where you did a little bit too much of that? Yeah, I, I do talk about that. I, one of the things, I, there's a whole section in the book where I talk about, about your physical, mental, and emotional health. And I think that's a really important. And because a lot of comics, they'll, they'll fall into, there's so many categories that these comics, or so many things that you can do where some comics, they'll, they'll do their act and, and they get so stuck on their own act because it works that they end up not doing as well because they no longer have the passion for those jokes. Yeah. So they're just the motions that is telling the jokes and all of a sudden they're not doing as well, or they're mm-hmm. not drawing as well for this reason or that reason. And I, I just talk about that. I just talk about comics that need to, if you got to take a break and if you have to quit comedy because you're not enjoying it anymore, then there's no shame in that either. There's right. a lot of things in this business that it's a hard business. It's a hard business. It's, it's not good for you. If you're doing it for money, it's probably not the best 
you know, job in the world. Right. And if you're doing it for stability, it's not, it's not the best job yeah. in the world. <laughs> and and if you're doing it for for any variety of reasons, if you're doing it just to be, if you're doing it for any other reason, then it's this is what I tell people. I, I don't know how to word this the best way, but I, I say if you're doing comedy for any other reason other than the fact that you have to do comedy, it's gonna be it's gonna be tough on you if you're not getting that personal satisfaction out of the job, out of that career, you're going to get burnt out. You're going to get you know, destroyed in that. So I tell mm-hmm. people to constantly keep your fresh, constantly write new jokes, try at least one new joke a week that you can be excited about something that, that you can keep, you can that, that, that gets you motivated and keeps you going. And I find that keeps you from being burnt out. Now, when you're on the road all the time, for me, like I can't relate to some other people in that sense, because I love being on the road. Mm-hmm. I do, but I don't have a family. I don't, wife. I don't have kids. So when I come home, I don't really have a, a lot to come home to. For the longest time, I I didn't even have a nice place to live because I felt in my head that if, if my place was too nice, then I wouldn't want to leave it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you know? That was what I did as I, I not, that, not that I ever lived in like a shithole, um, as close to a shithole as can be, can be and be a home. So you have to love what you do. That's the bottom line. You have right. to love what you do. If you're miserable and you're hiding that misery by getting drunk every single night, you're not going to last very long. Right. It's just not. Yeah. When you were putting the book together and you were looking back on your career, did, did you look at any on your act in particular where you saw that, oh, I've been doing it like this for so long, I need to be more like this on stage. Did you ever have any times like that where you found out, yeah, you know what? I, I was doing it okay, but I wasn't doing it a hundred percent right. Sure. Yeah. A lot. I have throughout my entire career, I've had those moments. Mm-hmm. And I think some of it comes down to maturity as well. Mm-hmm. And it's as a person and maturity as an act. But like I said, again, when I started out, I was 18 years old Mm. and uh, like zero life experience. Mm. Nobody wants to hear about how great high school was when they're 40 years working or working a job at a factory. It just doesn't work out for them. I like one of the first things I would say is I would have started comedy way later in life if I, you know, was smart about it. 25 Mm. to 28, probably be perfect. You have some life and maybe some money in the bank, a lot of different things going on. But what? that I realized that I, when I first started doing comedy, I wanted to be that edgy comic like that you talked about. I mm. wanted to be that guy. Yeah. So I would intentionally say and do things to antagonize the audience. And it led to it, 12 separate times of me being physically attacked on stage. When you look back on that, you go, yeah, that was probably not the right thing. I probably shouldn't have told the guy who got a phone call from his mother, uh, who was dying of cancer that I was going to go over to her house and fuck her later that night. Yeah. That was probably <laughs> the way to approach that. Yeah. You know? yeah. There's different ways to, to do that. And uh, as far in that, and then I, I remember I, I did a joke once in my, in my career. And this is, a, it's, I tell the story in the book too, where me and this other comic, we went out to a diner and we we're going to do some writing together. And one of the things I asked him, I had this new joke and that wasn't even that new of a joke, but it was a joke I was working on. And it, I was comparing this is, a, I hate even saying this like this, but the joke was about how people always wanted to show you pictures of their kids. Uh-huh. And like they're so proud of their kids, of their kids. And if you don't have kids, to me, the equivalent of that would be if I took pictures of my shit and then showed people yeah. pictures of, my shit. look at this, isn't this great? This is, I'm so proud of this. <laughs> and, uh, 
and it, it it worked really well on stage. But then I, I was going to this comic, I go, hey, do you have any advice on this joke so I can make it better? And he just like really calmly just looked at me, and he goes, yeah, I I could probably help you make that better, but it's still going to be a shit joke. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, all that. and then I was like, fuck this guy. But then later you look back at it and you go, oh, he's got a point. Why yeah. am I writing jokes? shit why am i worried about jokes about shit you yeah know what i mean i should try to do something maybe a little bit more personal a little bit more relatable and more have more of a connection to the audience on a real level than just some scatological joke about whatever excrement yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's still funny but it like he said it's still a shit joke so there you go it, yeah. i mean it, you should always try to be as personal as you can. And that's one of the things like when you hear comics talking about, oh, this guy stole my joke or this guy stole my joke. I always used to joke about this and say, I go, I don't have to worry about people stealing my jokes because my jokes are, are terrible. So it's the way I tell them to make them funny. If you, you, you write jokes that, that are personal enough that nobody could really take them because yeah. it's your life. Yeah. And I, I that's one of the- I totally relate to the attacking the audience thing because I, I, people who know me now would not think think I'm like this because I'm very zen now. But I, my, I didn't used to have a fight or flight response. It was always fight. It was always no matter what happened. Yeah. If you mess with me, I am going to hit you. And the, and I've outgrown that. But if I started comedy way later, and if I would have started when I was young, I just would have been in fights all the time. It would have been, it, it would have been total mayhem. So I, I can totally get that because it's hard. It, it, your ego's up there, and you've worked hard for stuff, and people are shitting on your act. There's a shit joke, but they're they're going after you, and you do want to respond in kind, and it's hard not to. Yeah, it's you want to win. That's the kind of thing when you're on stage and somebody's talking or somebody's interrupting you or doing yeah. whatever, your goal is, no, this is my time in, in your head. This is my time. You're not going to win. You're not going to win. I'm going to do it. And whatever it takes, I'm going to. But the audience isn't necessarily going to be on your side when, when you're doing. That's something you have to understand, too, is you have to find when you're dealing with hecklers. And I talk about dealing with hecklers in there, too, is, is finding the middle ground is being aggressive enough to get them to shut up what without turning the audience off against. Yeah. And that's a delicate balance. It's something that's not as easy for everybody to do. Yeah. And you have to figure out a way to, to, to do that properly. Mm-hmm. There's so many elements to comedy that can be done so many different ways, which is what I think makes it great. Like Bill Burr is completely different than Gabriel Iglesias, which is who's completely different than Dave Attell or Dave Chappelle. There's so many approaches and that's what makes it great. But even having so many different ways to do it right, there's uh, only so many ways to do it wrong. And if you do it wrong, it's going to bite you in the ass in the end. Yeah, no doubt. Thinking about your career and all the people you've worked with, what do you think is the best piece of advice you got and the worst piece of advice you got? Ah, the best piece of advice and the worst piece of advice. Now, the best piece of advice is pretty easy, and it was. it's going to sound really dumb to people that don't do it. Mm. But the best advice I ever got was somebody told me that travel with my own pillow and never even made – when I got that, I was like, why are you, Why would you even – Why would, that's stupid. But yeah. it's such – it's so meaningful. You never yeah. know when you're going to end up sleeping in a car. You never know when you're going to – in a condo that, that should have been condemned. You right. know, it's something – 
home. It's a piece of your reality. It's a piece of your comfort that you can have with you. And in the end, that's the most important thing in the world. Uh-huh. The most important thing. As far as the worst piece of advice goes, that's really tough. God, I don't know. I wish I had a better answer yeah. for you for that one because that's, that's all right. uh, sometimes people give and you, like when you get bad advice, at least for me, I, most of the bad advice I've gotten were people that uh, were suggest suggestions for my jokes. Comics like to tell people whatever, and they'll say something and they'll go, "You should do it like this." And uh, I'll go, "Why would I?" That's the worst advice ever. That's yeah. the dumbest thing. Well, I, I give you an example of that, which I think is funny. Dennis Regan. I don't know if you know who Dennis yeah. is, but it's uh, Brian Regan's brother. Yeah, and uh, probably one of the honestly, in my opinion, one of the funniest joke writers in the world. Uh-huh. But he was. I was working with him in, I think, Myrtle Beach somewhere, and he was doing some joke on stage that wasn't really working. It was one of his newer jokes. It wasn't killing the way he he wanted it to. But his joke was about that uh, whatever state it was, West Virginia or something like that, enacted a new law that said you can only um, buy seven handguns a week as the law. They limited your you know, to seven handguns. And he goes, goes, that's going to be a problem for me because I keep losing mine. And he goes – library was his joke uh, you know and, and, and afterwards i go I, I went up to him i go hey you know what you should do you should add i think i left it with professor plum or something like that turning it into a, a clue joke hmm. and he just looked at me like just just dead faced and he goes if i wanted advice on 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 my jokes i still probably wouldn't ask you yeah <laughs> you know, something like that <laughs> I tend to not offer suggestions anymore unless somebody asks me in advance if I have any ideas. Yeah. Because not everybody, I can tell you that. And and, and in the end, he's right. I was was changing the structure of the joke completely. It was a completely, he's making a political statement and I'm turning it into a stupid board game joke. Yeah. But. And, and I found that it's a lot different, like workshopping a, a premise with somebody than getting notes after you've already said something, after you've already done your act. You don't really, you want to know, but you don't want to know. And the notes don't really help after you've done, done an act. And the, the only person I listen to is my wife on on notes on my act and she's always spot on is i've got like jim gaffigan's wife she she can tell me what works and what doesn't work and we were just talking the other day about a joke i'm six five and i'm from indiana i didn't play basketball and i had done a joke about a coach that said he'd give his right arm to be as tall as me when he played basketball and i just do a stupid look and doesn't the fact that you only have one arm make it actually worse than being a tiny little man and i i did it one time and it killed i didn't know it killed because i wasn't recording myself and i mentioned the basketball thing as using it for an opener and she said remember that one and i'm like oh yeah so i had to rewrite it down and uh, bring it out that was like the first year i started doing comedy and she said that's a great joke i don't know why you don't ever do it yeah she's the only one i listen to and i did i also i work clean and i've got I've got a joke that talks about stuff that my wife and I have in common. And one of the things that I do is because I'm old, I talk young. So I call her my bae and my boo and stuff like that so that younger people laugh at me. And that works. But one of the things we have in common, I would always say, we don't front. And she don't front, I don't front. And one of my friends said, what you need to say at the end of that is, is, no, I'm serious. We don't fuck around. And... 
it works. I actually did it that way and it works, but it doesn't work for me because that violates my clean comedy thing. And I just, I can do it, but I don't do it. And it was good advice. It just wasn't good for me. So it's funny how you get that, you get those notes and they, sometimes they help, but mostly they don't. Yeah, you, you, there's probably uh, a handful of comics that anybody knows personally who can vibe with you on the same level of, of knowing your style, knowing what works for you. Yeah. And then there's other comedians that are just way out in left field. Just, yeah. They, you know, just there's might work for them. They could tell that joke and have it work for them their way, but it just isn't going to work for you. And you yeah. have to recognize that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. But- I'm check. I'm checking because I feel like I'm on the wrong channel here. I, I go to two channels. I think I'm on the wrong one, but that's okay. We're almost done anyway. But yeah, the the other question I like to ask people, and I think you probably address this in the book. And I want to put the book back up there so people can. Is this available at, at Amazon? Yeah, it's available on Kindle and on paperback Excellent. as of today. And uh, I'm going to Kindle I'm, Unlimited. It's free. Excellent. I'm going to get it today. But yeah, what three things do you know now about stand-up comedy that you wish you would have known when you started? Okay. That's a really good question, too. What three things do I know now that I wish I would have known back then? Yeah. Uh, I would. I guess the first one, would, you mentioned this, whatever, is that you are you can do this your entire life. It doesn't mean you're going to be uh, a, a star. Right. It, it doesn't there is no guarantee of anything in this world, mm. right? No guarantee. That's number one. Number two is that people, some people, we talk about this too, just aren't going to like you. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what you cannot please everyone all the time. It isn't going to work. And three, honestly, I think it would have been is that certain jokes or certain styles or certain things might be good for your artistic integrity, yeah. whatever, but it's not going to be. Else. Yeah. You're not going to be discovered by doing something that just pleases you. Yeah. Finding jokes that you like that the audience and the bookers also is the key to everything. Not just about you. I talk about in the book or I talk about I was in Columbus, Ohio at one point in time and I went to an open mic and there was probably 15 comics up there and all 15 comics did at least one rape joke. And uh, that's not getting you booked anywhere in the country. No. So yeah. I don't know why you have that trend or why do you guys think that's funny? But they think, oh, that's edgy enough that it's going to get the audience to get that little thing. Because some audiences do. They go to a comedy club because they go, oh, I want to hear something that 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 isn't you know good for polite society. But other audiences go there. They had a really shitty day and they just want to laugh. And they don't want to hear about a rape joke when, you know, their daughter had been raped yeah. or their sister had been raped. Right. Like yeah. that. Jokes can affect people on a very personal level. Yeah. And uh, that, always- those subjects are just, it's very specialty. Some people can do them like people who have been through it. You can certainly do that, but you have to be an established, a very established comedian to even do it. Then it's, yeah. you, you've got to have a lot of respect out there in order to get away with that. You, I, ha, yeah. Some people do whole shows around it, but sure. that is their experience and they've, 
worked hard to get to that point. And it's funny, there's a Facebook group I'm on and somebody said, when is it okay for, I think, white people to do racial humor? And my my answer was, I've never done a, a racial joke and I never will because I know how to stay in my lane. And and that, that got a couple people mad at me, but that was okay. But right. it, it's just, if I, it's not my experience. I've got all the white privilege. There's nothing I can lend to anything racial except for the fact that I know that I've had racists in my family. My great, my great grandpa. That, that's all I got. So it, it, there's, I can talk about that, but I can't really make that to where it is meaningful to anybody. So yeah, I actually wrote a joke about that and I bounced off some people and they said, yeah, that's not going to work. So it, it, it went, went back in the drawer. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I tell yeah. you, Steve, it was great talking to you. I'm glad you wrote this book. I can't wait to read it because it's funny. Uh, Steve Martin in his book, Born Standing Up, he did talk about a lot of the mistakes he made, but a lot of the other ones are like, yeah, I did this and this is all you got to do. And then you'll be a successful comic and it, it'll be good to read all the bad stuff that can uh, happen too and how to overcome it because obviously you've been working long enough that you have overcome it and when something else comes up you've got the tools to do it again sure for sure absolutely i i appreciate you having me on here and i and i i hope the book can help some people that's really the, the goal i hope that some people can look at this and go oh i never thought of it this way i never saw this angle and i and or this is how you approach a book or this is how you survive on the road and those kind of things. Yeah, and, uh, I just want to make if, if I can make the, the comedy world just a small part better then I think I've done my job. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I, I really look forward to reading it. And then maybe after I'm done reading it, I'll have you back on and we can do a little critique of it. Hey, sounds great. Make yeah. notes. Great. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you, man. Thanks. Yeah.